Sometimes in your search for happiness, you ponder the meaning of your life. And what is the truth? You sift your memory for beginnings. The truth. You send your mind ahead for directions. Truth. But all you really know is now, and you are lost in the present. And what is the truth? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Welcome back to the Know Thyself History Podcast. Today we begin our series on mass delusions, mob mentality. And we're going to begin in Ireland. I don't know if this music is fitting. It's a little too pretty for the ugly subject we're going to be talking about today. But we begin in the southeastern part of Ireland, the town of Kilkenny. If you go visit Kilkenny now, you can still see the castle that has stood there since the 12th century. By the time our story begins in 1324, that castle had already been standing for about 130 years. The Black Death wouldn't arrive in Ireland for 20 more years. But that's not to say that all was well in Kilkenny, especially according to its zealous bishop, Richard Ladreed. Because in 1324, this stalwart defender of the faith declared with great solemnity that his entire diocese was overrun with devil worship, heresy, and witchcraft. That's right, witches were running rampant in Kilkenny, and Bishop Ladreed had had enough. Now, most of the impetus behind this declaration came from one trial in particular, the trial and conviction of Alice Kiteller for witchcraft. We don't know much about Alice's personality and demeanor, but because of the trial record, we do have a broad outline of her life. In fact, if you look at the two incontrovertible facts about her life, the first is that Alice was rich, and she only got richer over the course of her life. And the second glaring fact about Alice's life is that all of her husbands had a bad habit of dying. So you know that place in your hometown that has been like five different restaurants and every one of those restaurants failed? And then some intrepid soul will start another restaurant there. And you just feel bad because you know already the restaurant they're going to start there is doomed to fail. Well, that's kind of what it was like to be Alice Kiteller's husband. You see somebody marrying her after you know already that two or three of her husbands have died and you can't help but feel kind of sorry for the guy. But I guess hope springs eternal. So Alice was rich and her husbands tended to die. Now, I'm not trying to make any kind of accusation here. People died all the time and her husbands could easily have died of natural causes. But the fact that her husbands died will become important in the case of Alice Kiteller. Alice was from a family of merchants herself. They moved to Kilkenny sometime in the 1270s probably. In the year 1280, Alice was married to her first husband, a wealthy merchant and moneylender named William Outlaw. We don't know exactly how long William Outlaw lived, but a few years after their marriage, Alice and William had a son. They named that son William Outlaw also. Alice's husband, William, we know was dead by the year 1302. How do we know that? Because by 1302, Alice is already married to her second husband, another moneylender named Adam LeBlund. Now, one more relevant thing that happens around this time, in the following year, 1303, her son, William Outlaw, is declared an adult, even though he's only 13 years old. That sounds crazy to us, but it wasn't that unusual in those times. 
for a teenager to be declared an adult. That's important because he then becomes Alice's chief business partner. Alice and her son William are in business from that time forward. The family was prominent enough that at one point William Outlaw the son becomes the mayor of Kilkenny. And Alice, with her second husband, Adam LeBlond, becomes even richer than she was with her first husband, William Outlaw. How rich were they? Well, in 1303, according to official records, Alice and her second husband, Adam, had in excess of 3,000 pounds saved. To really understand how rich that was, you have to understand that in those times, a day laborer would have to work all day, every single day, no days off, for two months just to earn one pound in wages. So Alice and her husband had 6,000 months. That's 500 years of wages saved. Say you translate that into U.S. dollars, that's about $20 million that Alice and Adam had saved by the year 1303. So the real trouble begins for Alice in about 1307. In that year, for some unaccountable reason, Adam LeBlond, her second husband, dispossessed all of his own children, all of his children from his first marriage. And he left everything, all of his money, his jewelry, his possessions, to William Outlaw, his stepson. And then very shortly after he writes all of his own children out of his will, entirely, Adam LeBlanc dies. But never fear, Alice did not grieve too long for Adam. By 1309, she's married to her third husband. This time, probably not coincidentally, he's a wealthy landowner from Tipperary, a man named Richard de Valier. And once again, you already know how this is going to go. Within a few years, Richard is dead. Alice and her son William Outlaw are even richer. Now, I'm phrasing that in such a way as it sounds kind of sinister, but I have to admit, we have no direct evidence, no evidence whatsoever that Alice was killing these husbands. Alice and her son got richer, husbands died, but people died all the time in those days. But we have to admit, at least, that it looks bad. In the world of business, they would call this bad optics. And the optics are made even worse by the fact that the children of these men that are dying are being dispossessed before the man dies. So these dispossessed children are understandably furious. They are drawing connections. And we have to admit, from our vantage point, Alice is looking a whole lot like a parasite, one that consumes her host's resources, ends up killing the host, then transfers all of those resources to her own son, William Outlaw. So no matter what was really going on, it's easy to see why the children of these men who are dying would be furious with Alice Kiteller. But legally, they really didn't have much recourse. So their anger is just simmering inside of them for months or years. But in 1324, they can't take it anymore. It all comes to a head. By that time, Alice is married to her fourth husband. It's 44 years since her first marriage to William Outlaw. She's already rich. Her son is rich. She's married to a knight named Sir John Lepore. And Alice decides at that point that she didn't get quite enough money from her third husband's estate. So she takes the children of her third husband to court, demanding even more money. Well, they've had it. They can't take it anymore. Final straw. So, either because they truly believed it, or as a bit of a stratagem, they denounce Alice Kiteller as a witch. Now, that sounds terrifying if you're Alice Kiteller, but we're looking at it through our lens. At that time, in the early 1300s, witchcraft was just another form of magic. It was a minor criminal offense, so people looked down on it, but nobody thought of it as a capital offense. Nobody had ever been executed in Ireland until this time for the crime of witchcraft or sorcery. So, the whole thing might have been a minor event probably never would have come to our attention, would have been settled in the civic courts, especially when you consider Alice's wealth and her connections, if it weren't for the single-minded zealotry of one man, the Bishop of Ossory, Richard Ledreed. 
Ladreed was from England, where they didn't take witchcraft all that seriously, but he had been schooled and trained and commissioned on the continent in Avignon, where they took witchcraft very seriously indeed. In fact, Richard had the same view of witchcraft as the papal court at Avignon. He thought it was a heresy, an inversion of Christianity and a form of devil worship. So this stalwart defender of the faith, Bishop Ladreed, was commissioned by Pope John XXII, and arrived in Kilkenny in 1317. And he came with a reform agenda. He was very zealous at stamping out the territory of the church, defending the rights of the church, so much so that he was often at odds with the local dignitaries. And not only that, but Bishop Ladreed's patron, Pope John XXII, himself lived in fear of practitioners of the dark arts. He thought his own life was in danger from spells and incantations. So Bishop Ladreed was not the person who was going to consider an accusation of witchcraft a diversion or a waste of time. So when the dispossessed families accused Alice Kyteller of witchcraft, Bishop Ladreed began formal proceedings against her. Now there was a lot of jockeying back and forth. Alice had her defenders, the bishop had people on his side, and there was some doubt as to whether she would actually ever go to trial. But Bishop Ladreed never gave up. He was like a pit bull in there. He was like the Inspector Javert of Kilkenny. And eventually Alice had to face some charges. And not only Alice, but all the members of her household were considered guilty by association. So these seven charges were brought against Alice and her entire household. First, that they were denying Christ and the church. Second, that they cut up living animals and scattered the pieces at crossroads as offerings to a demon called the Son of Art in return for his help. Third, that they stole the keys of the church and held meetings there at night. Fourth, that in the skull of a robber, they placed the intestines and internal organs of cocks, worms, fingernails cut from dead bodies, hairs from the buttocks and clothes from boys who had died before being baptized, and that from this brew they made potions to incite people to love, hate, kill, and afflict Christians. Now, if this already seems like a piece of farce to you, don't worry, it gets a lot worse. Fifth charge. Alice herself had a certain demon as Incubus, by whom she permitted herself to be known carnally. That he appeared to her either as a cat, a shaggy black dog, or as a black man named Ethiopius, from whom she received her wealth. I mean, honestly, can you imagine a bailiff reading these charges out with a straight face? But it goes on to number six. Alice used sorcery to murder some of her husbands and to infatuate others, with the result that they gave all their possessions to her and her son William Outlaw, thus impoverishing her stepchildren. Now that one kind of smacks of truth, doesn't it? Finally, the seventh charge. Alice's fourth husband, Sir John Lepore, is being poisoned. Now I'm just going to throw in here. I think that's a charge that's hard to ignore. A contemporary description of John Lepore from 1324 describes him as emaciated, nails torn out, body hair removed. All of that is consistent with arsenic poisoning. And Alice did have a bad habit of losing husbands, so who knows? Suffice it to say, it's hard to paint Alice as a total victim here. I mean, what kind of person marries a man and then dispossesses his children, leaving them in poverty when she herself is already very wealthy? Unfortunately, there's no law against that. If there was a law against being a money-grubbing parasite, there'd be a lot of people in jail right now. So Alice had these seven charges read out against her. Now, it was well known at that time that the bishop, Bishop Ladreed, had the authority over Alice's soul, but he didn't have authority to arrest and imprison her. 
So even though he excommunicated her for all these heresies, he didn't have the power to arrest her. He demanded that the civic authorities arrest her, but they were reluctant to do so. They didn't really like Ladrid, kind of considered him a nuisance and a menace. But eventually, after all the jockeying back and forth, the stratagems, the maneuvers, Alice could tell which way the wind was blowing. She knew that Ladrid was implacable. He was going to have her arrested. So Alice disappeared. She took her money and she ran for it. Nobody knows where she went. There were rumors that she was seen in Flanders or in England, but she was gone. And wherever she went, she left her entire household in the lurch. All of her servants, all of her associates, all the people who worked for her were considered guilty by association. They didn't have money and powerful friends like Alice did, so they were at the mercy of Ladrid. Now think about Ladrid's mindset at this time. Alice had escaped. He couldn't find her. He had a whole head of steam. He had all this pious outrage stored up, and he was going to take it out on somebody. So Ladrid arrested and examined every single person in Alice's employ using what he called the inquisitorial method, which you can imagine meant torture. Ladrid was not going to rest until all his preconceptions, all his accusations had been validated. In fact, even William, Alice's wealthy and connected son, was arrested. Now, William did a simple cost-benefit analysis. The easiest thing to do was just to confess to everything, get down on bended knee, beg for mercy from Bishop Ladrid, and get the whole thing over with, and that's exactly what he did. And he was given the sentence of penance, which meant he had to hear three masses every single day for a year, give food to the poor, and undertake to cover the roof of St. Canis's Cathedral with lead. So he had to upgrade the cathedral. William agreed to do all of these things and then did none of them. He went right back to his life as a moneylender and completely dismissed Bishop Ladrid's sentence. But something was going to happen that would change William's attitude entirely. You see, most of the members of the household of the Kiteller household, had been tortured until they confessed. Then they had to pay a security, and then they were released. So they paid a little money, they got off, they were done. But for reasons we don't know, one person was treated much worse than everybody else. That was Petronilla Domitia. And as I said, for reasons we don't know, Bishop Ladrid decided to make an example of her. She was, by all accounts, totally powerless, a 24-year-old maidservant in Alice Kiteller's household. But that's the kind of guy Bishop Ladrid was. What we know about Petronilla's fate comes from John Klein, a Franciscan chronicler in Kilkenny. So his account is obviously going to be sympathetic to Ladrid. And even though the whole thing is a rambling mess, which I apologize for, I want to quote it in its entirety because I think it's so instructive about the mindset of people in those times. John Klein says, quote, On this same day was burned Petronilla of Midia, the heretic, one of the accomplices of said Dame Alice, who, after she had been flogged by the bishop through six parishes for her sorceries, then being in custody, confessed publicly before all the clergy and the people that at the instance of the said Alice, she had wholly denied the faith of Christ and of the church, and that she had at Alice's instigation sacrificed in three places to devils, in each of which places she had sacrificed three cocks at crossroads without the city to a certain demon who called himself Robert Artson, one of the inferior order from hell, by shedding their blood and tearing them limb from limb, and from the intestines of these cocks, with spiders and black worms like scorpions, and with other plants and disgusting worms, along with the brain and the swaddling bands of a child dead without baptism, she, in the skull of a certain thief who had been beheaded, and on the instruction of the said Dame Alice, 
made many confections, ointments, and powders for the afflicting of the bodies of the faithful, for producing love and hatred, and for making the faces of certain women look like the faces of horned goats. Moreover, she confessed publicly that with her own eyes she was a witness when the said demon, in the form of three Ethiopians carrying three iron rods in their hands, appeared to her mistress Alice in broad daylight, and while she was looking on, knew Alice carnally. Amongst other things, she said that with her said mistress, she had made a sentence of excommunication against her own husband with lighted wax candles and repeated expectorations, just as their rules required. And though she was indeed herself an adept in this accursed art of witchcraft, she said she was nothing in comparison with her mistress, Dame Alice, from whom she had learned all of these things and many more, and indeed in all the realm of the King of England, there was none more adept or skilled in her art. So publicly confessing to her detestable crimes, she was burned in the presence of an infinite multitude of people with due solemnity. This was the first heretical sorceress burned in Ireland. What can you say about that? People with our same basic wiring found that narrative compelling. I have to admit, it's not without a certain morbid, perverted, creative genius. But how credulous would you have to be to believe that sanctimony is that totally overblown, like every bad thing they could think of, they just wrapped it all into one accusation? You would think it would be so obvious that they're overplaying their hand, but I think that was expected. In fact, I think people really loved the salacious tabloid nature of these trials. Unless, of course, you were the accused. Unless you were Petronilla Domitia, who was burned in front of, in the very accurate summary of John Klein, an infinite crowd. So Petronilla Domitia is burned. That's a hideous spectacle. I can't imagine how terrifying it would be to see another human being burned. Suffice it to say, it's a strong enough image that William Outlaw has a total change of heart. He begs Bishop Ladreed to come visit him. He grovels in the mud before the bishop, fearing for the safety of his own soul and body, of course. He asks for more penances, and Bishop Ladreed obliges. Now, William Outlaw has to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, give more money to the church, cover more of the roof of the cathedral, etc. And William Outlaw is all too happy to comply. So you can see the power of these public spectacles. You can see why they remained a staple of the Inquisition for so many years. Nothing could strike terror into the heart or compliance into the recalcitrant like watching somebody burned. That's a powerful image. So this is just one witch burning. But I think it reveals a lot about why these trials, why these burnings took place. And the one thing that I want to point out is a point that's been made many times before, and that is... Secondary gain often seems like the primary motivation. The primary motivation for holding trials for witchcraft ostensibly would be to root out evil, to protect the church, to protect the population from the evil influence of demonic forces. The fact that, say, Bishop Ladreed gains power and authority and brings in extra funds for his diocese through these trials, which is undeniable. I mean, look at William Outlaw, willing to grovel in the mud before Bishop Ladreed because he's so terrified. All Bishop Ladreed had to do was burn and torture this poor peasant girl, and he got everybody's attention. Or consider the dispossessed children of Alice Keiteller's previous husbands. They really seem to have no legal recourse for what Alice was doing. And yet, with the accusation of witchcraft, 
they could set it all right again. And so these would be considered secondary motivations, secondary gains from a successful witch trial. But it's hard to look at these trials and not see some element of greed or personal aggrandizement or vengeance in a lot of them. And I have no idea. I can't impugn the motivations of people like Bishop Ladrid. He might have been the truest believer in history. He might have thought he was saving countless souls with his actions. Maybe he did. But I bet he didn't hate the increased social status that these trials brought to him and to his diocese. And I think it's significant and somewhat telling that people like Bishop Ladrid never tried to reassure or calm the public mind about demonic possession or witchcraft or sorcery. They always wanted to stoke the fire, to feed the imagination of the public, to whip up the masses into an outraged frenzy. Which is why I began with the fact that Bishop Ladrid issues a proclamation that his entire diocese is a hotbed of devil worship. Because how important, how indispensable does that make him? burning at the stake of Petronella de Midia was the first time a witch had ever been executed in Ireland. And yet people have pointed out that it had a lot in common with the witch burnings going on on the continent at that time. Most people attribute that to the fact that the Bishop of Ossory, Richard Ladrid, came directly from Avignon. The continent in general, both France and especially Germany, had always been fertile ground for this whole mania to grow. So where did it begin in the first place? If you look at the medieval period, that's the period of time the Middle Ages began when Rome fell in 476, and that continued until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So during the Middle Ages, there had been some witch trials, some accusations of witchcraft, but anti-witch persecutions were not codified into law until the time of Charlemagne. Charlemagne, who was king of the Franks and the Lombards and eventually the Romans, around 800 AD said, look, I am sick of all the sorcerers and witches in my kingdom. I banish you all. And when that wasn't harsh enough, when the sorcerers and witches were still hanging around, he actually wrote it into law that they should be punished by death. But even then, people didn't take it all that seriously. There was no broad campaign to root out and kill witches. Witchcraft, and in a broader sense, some form of popular magic, had probably been part of human culture from time immemorial. And frankly, before the Middle Age witch craze, it was not considered a particularly threatening part of human culture. Now, by witchcraft, what do we mean? According to Yale professor Keith Wrightston, what people in the Middle Ages would have understood by witchcraft was a body of beliefs and practices regarding supernatural power. It stood outside of the formal religious system, so it stood outside of Catholicism. Yet it was widely known, and it functioned to help a broad swath of the population cope with the insecurities, the anxieties, the uncertainties of their lives. It did this through a ritual way of manipulating or propitiating supernatural powers, usually spirits. And so they could defeat an enemy, they could bring fortune, they could protect themselves from evil, relieve a sickness, all through this witchcraft, through this magic. And it's important to remember how inscrutable the world around them might have seemed to people at this time. In fact, it's still inscrutable to us, but to them, that was compounded by the fact that they didn't have cause and effect explanations for many of the events that affected their lives. 
So when the world around you seemed incomprehensible and completely outside of your control, witchcraft brought some comprehensibility and some level of at least perceived control to your environment. This was not a formal codified practice. It was a whole hodgepodge of beliefs and practices. So there were potions, spells, charms, and it was regarded with suspicion by the church in the early Middle Ages because it stood outside church authority. But it wasn't considered an existential threat. In fact, historian James Obelkovich described medieval magic in a way that I think is just brilliant. It's genius. He says this, it was, quote, a large, loose, pluralistic affair without any clear unifying principle. It encompassed superhuman beings and forces, witches and wise men, and a mass of low-grade superstitious practices. The whole was less than the sum of its parts. What a great line. The whole was less than the sum of its parts, for it was not a cosmos to be contemplated or worshipped, but a treasury of separate and specific resources to be used or applied in concrete situations. End quote. And we can relate to what he's saying there, because, of course, Disorganized systems of similar belief and ritual continue to this very day. When we knock on wood, when we wash our car because we think it's going to make it rain, when we wear a specific jersey or shirt because we're trying to bring luck to our favorite sports team, when we blow on a pair of dice before we roll it, or any other of a number of similar practices, we're participating in that same tradition because we don't know where those things came from. We simply know that there are ways to try to manipulate the outcome we seek. So there were always these common beliefs shared among the population, but in the case of witchcraft and popular magic, there were also specialists. There were people who were considered especially adept, whether it was performing rituals, making brews, appeasing spirits, whatever it was. These people were known as the cunning men or the wise women. And the cunning men, the wise women, were people who had special knowledge, over and above the average Joe. Many of them were thought to be especially powerful. Also, within themselves, they had some intrinsic or inherited power that allowed them to exert more control over the world of spirits. And these wise women, these cunning men, might be people that you would go to if you thought maybe there was a hex on you, if somebody in your family was sick, if your sheep were suffering from infertility. So they served various uses. You can see why Professor Wright says that the whole was less than the sum of its parts. Some of these cunning folks, some of the cunning men, the wise women, undoubtedly competed with each other. So the idea that they were somehow united in the army of Satan trying to destroy God's one true church didn't map anywhere onto this reality. So even though there was no uniting dogma or hierarchy, these types of people were very, very common. According to Professor Wrightston again, during the Middle Ages, no village in East Anglia was more than 10 miles away from one of the cunning folk. So if you lost a tool that was valuable, if you couldn't sleep at night because your sleep was troubled by evil dreams, if you wondered what the future held for you and what path you should choose, you went to see one of the cunning folk. As I said earlier, the Catholic Church didn't really approve of these wise people. They had a different idea of where good and bad fortune came from. It came from the one God. So if you needed something, it was God, through his church, that you should supplicate or propitiate, not these wizards who peep and mutter. If you went to a witch or a sorceress or a cunning man, and you did receive help, that help didn't come through God's church, therefore it didn't come from God, and therefore it came from other spirits. So the question naturally arises when you look at this landscape full of cunning men, wise women, dabbling in various incantations and petty spells. When did these people go from being disfavored to being considered the sworn enemies of the church, heretics, minions of Satan? 
You could say it began all the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. And depending on who you ask, the book of Exodus was written sometime around the Babylonian exile in 600 BC. Or according to the traditional view, it was written by Moses himself sometime before 1300 BC. Either way, it's much earlier than the Middle Ages. And there in Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, we see the death penalty being prescribed for witches. It says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27 even prescribes the specific method by which witches are to be killed. It says, A man or woman that hath a familiar spirit, or is a wizard, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. And in another little vignette, another little pericope in the Old Testament, in the book of Samuel, King Saul of Israel doesn't get any answers to his supplications from the God of Israel, so he consults the witch of Endor. And because he does this, he's cursed, and he dies in battle. So I think it's safe to say that the Tanakh is very anti-witchcraft. Now the Talmud continues this. Between two and five hundred of the Common Era, writings in the Talmud describe various forms of punishment and executions for witchcraft. So I think it's safe to say that Judaism as a tradition is very opposed to witchcraft. The New Testament adds to the Middle Ages understanding of witchcraft in a different way. It doesn't specifically spend a lot of time about sorcery or witches. It does talk about them, usually in negative terms. But what the New Testament has being post-Babylonian exile and post-Persian Zoroastrian influence is a lot of material devoted to demons. Demons possessing people, demons causing illness of various types, and then exorcisms. Exorcisms are one of the most common miracles in the New Testament. So, of course, in the Middle Ages, the New Testament lends credence to the idea that there are demonic, malevolent, and personal forces. In fact, there are even demons with names. And these forces can cause suffering, illness, insanity, any number of afflictions. And if Jesus and his apostles can cast them out then maybe there's an inversion of that. Maybe there are evil people who can call these demons and not only access demonic power to afflict their enemies, but also to oppose the work of God. Now, I have to confess, I naturally tend to think of history as being a progression. It's one of my little superstitions, I guess. That humanity has progressed from a time of ignorance and reactivity toward this golden age of calm, detached reason. So I'm occasionally surprised when people in an earlier age are much more sane than people who came thousands of years after them. Case in point, we talked about the fact that Charlemagne, around the year 800 of the Common Era, codified into the laws of his kingdom death or deportation for any sorcerers or witches. But even with those laws, people in the early Middle Ages seemed to take a much more measured approach to witchcraft. Case in point, in 910, there's a writing called the Canon Episcopi. This is a medieval canon law text recorded by Regino of Prum, and it describes some of the beliefs in the Kingdom of the Franks just before the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. Regino, writing in the year 910, condemns maleficium, which is using magic to hurt others. He also condemns sorilegium, which is fortune-telling. But... It takes a really measured tone. He argues that most of the stories of the acts of maleficium and sorilegium were ludicrous nonsense. He also said that those who believed they could somehow magically fly were suffering from delusions. So remember, this is pre-witch hysteria. He sounds pretty modern, doesn't he? Again, in the year 1154, John of Salisbury writes that he is skeptical about the whole idea of witches, especially witches riding in the night. I find it incredible that John of Salisbury can write that in the year 1154. Poo-poo the whole idea of witches having great malevolent powers. 
If he had written that three or four hundred years later, he probably would have been accused of being a heretic and a witch himself. I find it interesting that there are glimmers of rationality and light in the early Middle Ages that start to fade as time goes by. And just over a hundred years later, in 1258, Pope Alexander IV makes a declaration that changes the entire game. He classifies consorting with demons, which is another term for witchcraft and sorcery, consorting with demons is now an act of heresy. What did that mean? Well, that meant that witchcraft and the persecution of witches was now under the purview of the Inquisition. So local authorities and witch hunters now had a wealth of resources to root out witchcraft as a damnable heresy, an offense before God and man, and an affront to God's holy church. So think about the unwelcome promotion that these people just underwent. They had gone from being basically hags and geezers, cunning men and wise women, to being considered an existential threat to the church itself. So the game had totally changed. This began a fear of witches that spread all across the continent through the late 13th century, and the witch hunt was on. Of course, during the Black Death in the mid-1300s, the witch hunt intensified. People had to find a scapegoat. We already talked about the way Jews were persecuted during the Black Death. Well, as you can imagine, witches didn't fare much better. You can't blame people for trying to figure out what was going on during the Black Death. Everybody was dying all around them. It certainly would have seemed demonic or diabolical. And really, what would have been a better explanation to people living at that time? They saw the whole universe as a cosmic morality play, so of course they would see the Black Death as the diabolical agency of demonic forces afflicting all of Christian Europe. And so as the plague spread, as misfortune spread, rumors spread of witches as anti-church, anti-Christian. They were no longer solo wise women or men, but members of a secret anti-church, a secret society that was well-organized, that met at night and participated in rituals presided over by the devil himself. I wish I could identify the exact point of origin of this story of the Black Mass, but they were supposed to participate in these rituals, which were kind of an inversion, a perversion of the Catholic Mass. And I want to give you an idea of the popular impression of what happened at these rituals. And so I'm going to quote from the book Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, written by Charles McKay, still one of the best and funniest resources on this topic in the world. He has a chapter called The Witch Mania, and this is what he describes people of the Middle Ages thinking that witches did at their Black Sabbaths. He writes, quote, At intervals, according to the pleasure of Satan, there was a general meeting of all the demons and all the witches. This meeting was called the Sabbath, from its taking place on Saturday or immediately after midnight on Fridays. These Sabbaths were sometimes held for one district, sometimes for another, and at least once a year, as a general Sabbath of the fiends for the whole of Christendom. The devil generally chose a place where four roads met as a scene of this assembly, or if that was not convenient, the neighborhood of a lake. Upon this spot, nothing would ever afterwards grow, as the hot feet of the demons rendered it barren forever. When orders had been issued for the meeting of the Sabbath, all the wizards and witches who failed to attend were lashed by demons with a rod made of serpents or scorpions as a punishment for their want of punctuality. In France and England, the witches were supposed to ride uniformly upon broomsticks, but in Italy and Spain, the devil himself, in the shape of a goat, used to transport them on his back, which lengthened or shortened according to the number of witches. McKay then goes on to describe how people thought that witches and warlocks on their way to this Black Sabbath were not allowed to go through doors or windows. They had to exit through keyholes, and some inferior demon would take their place so that the neighbors weren't alarmed when so many people were missing all at the same time. He goes on to describe how the devil would take his seat at the head of the assembly. The devil was considered a goat with a face in the front and a face behind. 
People had to come pay their respects to the devil by kissing the face behind. All the witches were then examined to make sure there were no imposters. They all had to have what was called the witch's mark, a secret spot that was insensitive to pain. And lest you think I jest, people really did take this seriously. In fact, there was a whole profession of witch pricking. So during the times of the witch hunts, people would prick the witches. We'll talk about that in the next episode. But they would try to find the spot where the witch did not react to being stabbed with a needle. So after these solemn proceedings, they all began to dance furiously. And they would continue this violent dancing for an hour or two until they couldn't dance anymore. They were just too tired. At that point, when they were just totally exhausted, they'd all sit down and they'd have a testimonial. They'd all recount the evil deeds that they had done since their last meeting. And if those deeds were not malevolent enough, Satan would scourge them. He would whip them with scorpions or snakes until they were so bloody and in so much pain that they couldn't stand up and they couldn't sit down. Now, I know you think I'm making all this up, but this is really what people thought happened at the witch's Sabbath. So after they had confessed all of their evil deeds, after they'd been whipped if they weren't evil enough, it was time for the evening's entertainment. So the devil would whip out a trumpet or a bagpipe and start playing. And thousands of toads, I kid you not, thousands of toads would rise up out of the dirt as the devil played his bagpipe, and they would begin dancing around on their hind legs, much to the amusement and diversion of the watching crowd. Now, lest you think that these were just ordinary dancing toads, no, these were talking dancing toads, and they demanded that every witch and warlock in that assembly repay them for their fine performance by bringing them the flesh of children to the next Sabbath. So let's just review the vignette that has been presented to us. We have a goat playing the bagpipe. Now what I don't know, what I think is very important that nobody addresses, is is this goat playing the bagpipe with his front face or his butt face? But putting that aside, we have a bunch of toads that have risen up out of the dirt, dancing for witches and warlocks, and demanding that they bring the flesh of children to the next witch's Sabbath. Now after these marvelous and terrifying scenes faded, the devil would stamp his foot, put down his bagpipe, and a big feast would ensue. And of course, the witches and warlocks would eat everything disgusting on the face of the earth. And then they would be compelled once again to dance for the devil. If the devil was really bored, he would force people to take off their clothes, and all the witches and warlocks would dance around naked. Their only clothing would be two cats, one suspended by a rope from their neck and another suspended by a rope from their waist. So the particular significance of this two-cat ensemble, I could not say. The culmination of the evening usually involved the mockery of certain Catholic ordinances. So, for example, at the end of the night, if everybody was bored, the devil would snap his fingers, the toads would reappear, and all the witches and warlocks would baptize the toads with filthy water. As soon as the cock crew, everything would disappear. And, of course, the ground would be left scorched, and nothing would ever grow there again. Now, to us, from our perspective, this sounds like probably the most pointless, fictitious, harmlessly goofy scene imaginable. But I'm not kidding when I say that this scenario, this is the summary of a scene that held sway, that terrified the people of Europe for centuries during the Middle Ages. And I have to ask myself two questions. The first is, how could anybody believe this? I don't care if your parents, your priest, your bishop, everybody believed it. How could you believe this? Nobody ever saw any of these things happen anywhere. And yet, based on nothing, they were all convinced that this is exactly what happened. 
and they were convinced to the point that they would actually kill people over these kinds of ideas. One of the most fascinating things that came from the interview with Rob Henderson was this idea of group polarization. So if you get a group of people who half believe something, and they all talk about it for long enough, they all become convinced that they totally believe it. And that maybe could have happened here. You get a group of people, each of whom kind of maybe sort of thinks this could have happened, and when they get together and talk, they all become convinced that that is exactly what happens. But I'm getting a little off topic. I want to save a discussion for the mechanisms, the processes by which people come to believe what seem to us to be ridiculous things for another episode. And for now, since this is Know Thyself History Podcast, I want to ask the question, why? Why do so many societies, historically and presently, of course, participate in activities that have sometimes a very high cost, in the case of the witch hunts, the cost of human lives, and yet don't seem to offer any kind of commensurate benefit to explain why they're so prevalent. Well, according to an article published in 2009 in the Proceedings of the Royal Academy of Biological Sciences by Kevin Foster and Hannah Coco, the answer may lie in selection pressure. In other words, they think there are certain situations where superstitious beliefs are adaptive. In other words, there are circumstances, many circumstances, where superstitions confer a survival advantage. And the rationale for arguing that is based on something like Pascal's Wager. Probably all know what Pascal's Wager is. It's the famous thought experiment by Blaise Pascal, which really boils down to kind of a cost-benefit analysis. He said, basically, if there is a god and you don't believe in him, then the cost is going to be infinitely huge. You'll miss out on heaven, possibly be sent to hell. So he was basing this on a Christian model. But he said, look, if there is no God, and yet you act as if you believe in one, what is the cost of that? The cost is very, very small. So when you compare the two, it makes much more sense. It's far more rational to believe in God. The opportunity cost is tiny if you're wrong, and yet the benefits are potentially infinite. So Pascal's wager, of course, is flawless in its logic if there's only one God, if there's only one Catholic Church. We have to admit that the logic breaks down just a little bit when there are thousands of gods in the equation. Well, in much the same way, according to Foster and Coco, I'll just quote what they say. Natural selection can favor strategies that lead to frequent errors in assessment as long as the occasional correct response carries a large fitness benefit. And they go through all kinds of complicated mathematics to establish this. But essentially what it amounts to is, you can be wrong a lot of the time when you assign cause and effect. And in a lot of cases, the worst thing that will result is that you'll waste a little bit of time and effort. But the times that you're right in assigning cause and effect, you can have a tremendous benefit. You can figure out the world, how things work. And knowing how things work confers a profound survival advantage upon you. And what is superstition except those attempts to assign cause and effect that didn't quite work out, that we no longer consider valid? So in this great human endeavor to assign cause and effect, to figure out how things work so that we can control our environment, there's going to be some casualties. Those casualties are called superstitions. And the cost of coming up with and even maintaining a few superstitions is far less than the benefit of actually knowing how to successfully manipulate your environment. So that's in a nutshell what their argument is. It doesn't explain the mechanisms by which we attempt to assign cause and effect. It doesn't explain how we come to believe one thing and reject another. But at the same time, I find it pretty compelling. Our tendency to try to assign cause and effect is going to lead to these great triumphs of knowledge, but it's also going to lead to some pretty silly superstitions. This has been Know Thyself History Podcast. Thank you for listening. The topic of witchcraft and witch hunts is just too vast. 
It's extensive. It's like trying to talk about war. How are you going to possibly narrow that down? I'm going to talk about two more episodes in the history of witchcraft. One is going to be the book and its effects called The Hammer of Witches. And the other episode is going to be an honorary member of the worst human beings to ever walk the face of the planet, the witch hunter general, Matthew Hopkins. 